Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to fishman.com for more info. And now your host, Joey Surges, Joe Lovsack, and A.L. Levy. Hey everyone, welcome. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. It's the good old mastering month and uh, today we have Brad Blackwood with us who is quite an accomplished mastering engineer. Welcome Brad, how are you doing? Doing great, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. I know that it was... uh, Tough to schedule, but we made it happen, and we're stoked that you're here. Excellent. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, I, I just want to say, you know, for some of our listeners, just to kind of familiarize them with your body of work, you've worked with like Maroon 5, but then Lamb of God and Corn and and the Black Eyed Peas and <laughs> Sick Puppies. And <laughs> uh, it's, it's quite a vast range of artists, and I love that. It's so awesome. It's a bit all over the place, isn't it? It's uh, yeah. everything from bluegrass to heavy metal and kind of everything in between, seems like. Yeah. I actually have a question about that. Okay. Because this, this comes from my own experience of in my younger years when I was in bands and hiring mastering engineers to master our stuff and all that we found that the guys who mastered metal couldn't master anything else and sometimes it was the other way too guys that were really really good at mastering like r&b and pop didn't cross over very well into heavier music so i'm wondering since obviously you've done both at a very high level doesn't get much higher than corn or lamb of god for metal do you approach it differently um not really i mean at the end of the day you know in mastering your hands are are largely tied. I mean, what you get is, is what you get. And you, there's not really a lot of, of massaging that can happen uh, in the master room. Obviously, you can be detrimental. You can make it much worse. But, you know, we're not like creating in the mastering room, we're really just trying to polish. And so to me, whether it's big wall of guitars or something stripped down in acoustic or a synthesized bass line or whatever, doesn't really make a difference in, in the approach or how we do things. I will honestly say that metal stuff is among the most difficult to master simply because everything wants to take up all the space all the time. You know, your guitars take up everything and your drums take up everything and the vocals and it's just everything is just pushing for its its own space because everything's so big and loud and compressed and that makes it really difficult. Sometimes I feel like the easier records to cut are some of the more sparse records because, you know, if the tones are good on tape, there's really not a lot that you have to really worry about. You know, things aren't fighting for space nearly as much. But the approach, no, it's not really very different. It's it's the same thing. I'm just trying to listen to my room and make it sound good and try to get the vibe of the song and, and help people kind of feel it the best they can. I've always thought that the uh, arrangement of metal music made it very difficult for exactly the reasons that you said as a mixer as well. I just think it's uh, it's just a tough genre to deal with. And I feel like on paper, if people got good at that, they should be able to handle other styles as well but not always the case it does seem like people are pigeonholed quite a bit in this industry and it's even further than just metal and not metal i mean there's guys that are known primarily for doing pop music there's guys that are known for rap music there's guys who are known for rock music and i'm a rock guy at heart i mean that's what i've always listened to growing up and that's still what i generally listen to when i'm on my own but 
I really like not being pigeonholed. I like the fact that day to day I'm not listening to the same stuff and working with the same things. And I get that variety and difference in musicianship that you get across the different genres and and different approaches and different goals that they have. Uh, that makes it interesting instead of it kind of becoming a, a daily you know, drudgery job. Well, how did you prevent yourself from becoming pigeonholed? Because I know some guys who have done very, very well who just fell into a certain spot. Like they're the guy that does this type of metal band or something or this is the guy that does the Latin pop records and they would love to do other stuff, but they can't, they can't seem to figure it out. And I mean, these are guys that are doing really, really well. So yeah. It's not, it's not because they're not good. It's just, they, uh, somehow they fell into this, this pigeonhole and, uh, can't get out. How did you, it's difficult to get out. Yeah. How did you avoid it? Well, um, I think a lot of the credit for that would go back to where I got my start. And that was at Arden studios here in Memphis. Uh, I moved up here in 96 and started working with them and they had closed their mastering division back in 85. And I reopened that for them and was the chief master engineer there until I left in 03 and started euphonic masters. And really, I think working in a fairly large facility. It was three full-on rooms, you know, with large format consoles and a wide variety of clients that came through there who, you know, would often just choose to use me because the people at Arden trusted me and liked my work. And that that was a lot of exposure to a lot of different genres right out of the gate. And I think that really helped instead of, I think a lot of guys, they get started and if they don't have that, if they just, you know, start mastering records, whether it be, you know, with somebody as a mentor or open their own place, they'll have one or two records, let's say that are relatively big records and that they become kind of known as that guy. You know, he did, they were blues records or they were metal records or they were whatever. All the blues or people or whatever that, you know, was what that hit record was, start going for that reason. Because, hey, well, this guy, I know he does a great job on blues records. Let's use him. And I think that it can kind of snowball for some people. Mine was, you know, so many different records of so many different genres coming through that it was easy to sort of have guys go, well, he's my favorite this guy and he's my favorite that guy, instead of it being just one thing. But, I mean, yeah, and I've actually, you know, I've chased records in the past, and I still do that occasionally. I'll hear something I really like, and I'll contact them and just let them know, hey, man, I love your music, you know, you know, love working with you guys. And not with, you know, major artists, usually with guys who are starting off, but I just really like them and I want to work with them. And um, that also helps. It's just, it's that constant exposure. And I've also, I've, I've really made it a point really my entire career to listen to all sorts of music all the time. I'm primarily a rock guy, but I make myself listen to stuff that isn't even my my top preference uh, musically, just because I think familiarity with the genre and what it feels like and how it moves and what's going on right now is really important if you're going to approach music. Because if you try to master a, you know, a modern blues record or a bluegrass record like a rock record, it's going to you're probably not going to get it right. You know, they're, they're they're different genres. They have different expectations of sound and style and loudness and all these sort of other things. And and I think approaching them appropriately for what people are doing and what they want to hear right now is also is also important. I Absolutely. feel like that's so huge um, to really mix up the, I guess, the sonic experience, right? Like when I'm mixing a metal song, I'll switch to a, uh, listening to a pop song when I'm taking a break because it sort of like resets my sonic uh, fingerprint 
that I'm like sure. thinking about. So it, I, it's nice to hear that that's something that's important to mastering engineers as well. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for all of them, but <laughs> I mean, for me, it's definitely a, <laughs> it's definitely something I like to do. I mean, I'll listen to everything when I'm driving around in my truck and just you know getting a vibe for what's going on out there. And sometimes it's old stuff, and sometimes it's new stuff. And uh, I also make it a habit every morning of of having what I call my morning listen when I first get to the studio for about an hour when I'm doing paperwork and answering emails and stuff before we really start cranking for the day. Um, I'll pick out a record, just any record. It can be, you know, whatever the artist is. And I'll play the whole record top to bottom, usually, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, and that's just kind of what I'm listening to while I'm working. And it just helps wake, kind of wake my ears and my mind up a little bit and gives me a different perspective for that day, you know, because some different records obviously sound very different from one another from different eras and different production styles and so on and so forth. So, um, it's nice to kind of have that variation uh, so when, if I'm going to be cutting a metal record that day, I might actually pick something that's completely pop and, and completely different, like you mentioned. But yeah, that and ear breaks are huge too, of course. I take a lot of ear breaks throughout the day. I mean, if I work for an hour, at least 15 minutes of that is in total silence. I've, I'll stop the tape, just sit there, you know, chill out for about 30, 45 seconds, hit play again, and suddenly anything that's wrong is, is apparent once again. Because, you know, you get used to those warts in the recording uh, while you're working, yeah, they just they become yeah. kind of part part of it, and uh, and that's really why I think. And I'm not trying to shift subjects and jump around too much here, but I'm going no, to. Okay. I guess um, I think that's why uh, today, you know, anyone with a workstation has the tools, at least processing wise, to master a record. If you have the uh, you know a good room and you have good room acoustics, everybody's got the equipment. The equipment I've got is a lot of it's custom made and so on and so forth. But it's just basically EQs and compressors, and everybody's got loads of those, right? So today, the reason why it's still important, I think, for people to use master engineers, and I, and I don't think this is something that's a huge deal because everybody seems to realize this, is that that sort of objectivity that the master engineer brings to the project, that I haven't heard it, I haven't heard that song a thousand times like the, the tracking guys and the mixing guys have, and I haven't heard that little quirky guitar note or that snare flam or whatever a hundred times where it's become kind of part of the sonic fabric. For me, it still sticks out and go, wait a minute, that's not right, or, you know, this tick or this maybe to overall tone, maybe it's too dark, you know, or too bright. Uh, and when you listen to something over and over, you kind of get used to that. It's amazing how many times you're in your car and you'll throw on a record you haven't listened to in five years. And your first reaction is, man, that is so bright. I don't remember it being that bright. And halfway through, through the first song, it doesn't really sound bright anymore because your ears calibrate and your mind makes up for it. And suddenly it sounds right. Yeah. It's amazing what we can get used to, uh, when, exactly. by just being around it for long enough. And it's not just music, you know, it's anything in life. If you, if you don't get a break from it, you'll stop, uh, you'll stop recognizing what it's really like. Cause you're just used sure. to it. You can't pay as Definitely. close attention to it. So on the larger scale, yes, taking a lot of, you know, listening to different music and kind of getting that vibe is one thing, but taking a lot of ear breaks, I think is really important. And I, I see a lot of guys, whether they're mixing or whatever, and I'll watch them work a little bit and they may work for an hour just nonstop, like literally never stopping. And I get the nose to the grindstone, got to work hard sort of vibe. But at the same time, I'm not sure how you can do that and not lose your, you know, lose objectivity completely. I mean, you're not hearing things anymore. And every time I've done that and I've worked for long periods of time and I'll stop and, and walk away from it thinking it's sounding perfect. And I'll hit play and suddenly it's like, wow, that's, I've totally been chasing my tail for an hour. I should have stopped and <laughs> checked this a, a while ago. So uh, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind too. Something I like to do is go outside and actually, well, I don't live in a big city, so when I go outside, it's pretty quiet, but I'll go and just take a walk around the block and then come back, and it's amazing how refreshing that can be when sure. you're really stressed out or struggling with something. Yeah, 
it's, it's, yeah, the mind keeps working on it. Your, your brain still keeps crunching. If you can't solve something or can't figure out how to do it, a lot of times getting that break and getting outside in some fresh air and you walk back in and suddenly it connects for you and it clicks and you hear what's wrong and you know how to solve it. So yeah, that's, that's a good idea. How many hours per day on the topic of ear breaks? How many hours per day, including, you know, inc- including those 15 minutes of ear breaks per hour, but how many hours per day uh, uh, do you perform the art of mastering? Uh, I probably work about six to seven hours a day, five days a week. It's, uh, you know, when I was starting off, it was a much more, I don't want to use the word grueling, but much more time consuming process. Mm-hmm. Uh, eight, 10 hour days were very common. Um, but I've gotten to the point now where, well, first of all, different people have different sort of vibes for how they want to do things. For me, efficiency is, is one of the most important things. Uh, I don't rush through work, but I try to work very, I try to work very efficiently because I feel like once again, back to objectivity, the more time I spend listening to something, the less objective I can be. That uh, Denny Purcell was this great master engineer, lived in Nashville, just owned the charts for many years. Um, brilliant guy. He started Georgetown Masters. Uh, he died back in, I think, 01, but he had this, I met him one time and he had this great saying. He said, you only get to hear it for the first time once. And um, so it's, true. it's, you know, it's a sort of concept of you've really got that gut instinct, that initial reaction. That's what you're chasing. So, you know, when I started off, it would take me about 30 to 45 minutes a song, maybe even an hour to master each song. So, you know, 12 track record might take eight or 10 hours. Now it's much faster because basically I listen to it and I've built up the equipment that I have and the way that it's laid out and everything with, with this eye towards efficiency so that I can respond as quickly as possible to what I'm hearing and not have to dwell on it and listen to it too long. Because I'm, as I start listening, I make this mental list right away of what's right and what's wrong, what do I need to address and how to do it. And I, if I can immediately address those things and move to the next one, that's just less time that I've got to listen and get used to it and I can retain that objectivity. I love that philosophy, Brad. That's awesome. I do the same thing with mixing. I try to get through a mix as fast as I can because you know the band's going to have an opinion anyways on yeah. it. So you got to get to that. And-, and you know, regarding mixing, I'm not a mixer, obviously, but uh, there's uh, it's funny to me how many times it happens where people fall in love with the rough mixes and then you know you go back to mix it and you just fight and fight and fight to beat the rough mix and and people always describe that too well they've gotten used to the way it sounds and that there's there's certainly some truth to that i'm sure but i also wonder if you know when you're rough mixing and you're just blowing and going you're mixing like they did oftentimes like you know back in the 70s before there's automation when frankly a lot of really well mixed records came out because guys were just throwing their hands on the faders and just kind of and gut reacting right and um i think a lot of times when you get that rough mix there's sort of that visceral gut reaction type of thing happening and the mix connects with people uh maybe on a level that when you're trying to you know micro edit a syllable to get just the right volume level in the vocal you i think you may lose that some of that I don't know, that soul. I completely agree with you, but I think it's even deeper than mastering and mixing. Well, not deeper. I, I just think it goes down to the production level as well because um, plenty of times when I've been working with bands or in my own uh, band, the pre-pro takes were unmatchable. Even if we did it, uh, the production, like as uh, meticulous as possible and you know, took all the steps necessary technically for a great recording. There's just been some things on pre-pro that have not been matched by uh, by the real production. So I feel like there's just something in music where the first time 
oftentimes is the best time. Yeah, and so yeah, that's another reason why, for example, a lot of times clients will say, hey, can you listen to this track before we get to mastering and make sure there's nothing wrong with it? Or can you listen to the whole record? And, and I always, always kind of try to avoid that if possible. It's not that I don't want to be helpful. Obviously, I do. It's that it's yeah i don't want to hear it and like fall in love with this great guitar tone or something uh or this great vocal line and then suddenly i get the track to actually master it and i'm reminded of that and i'm no longer focusing as much or unable to focus as much you know on the issues that are at hand what's great about it what needs to be highlighted what's not great about it what needs to be fixed or or you know at least sort of pushed back a little bit uh within the realm of what we can do obviously in the master room so but hearing it the first time once i mean that's denny purcell nailed it and so if that's sort of like driven that sort of efficiency philosophy that i've got that i only have so much time to react to it before i really get comfortable with it and so i don't try to rush through it but i don't want to dilly dally around and take all day on it because I, that objectivity i think is really key to what we can bring as a master engineer can bring to the bring to the table. Definitely. Do you feel like that's getting lost a little bit these days because so many people can master themselves or well, quote unquote can master themselves or try to master themselves have at least have the the software tools available to them. Do you think that they uh, that the understanding the traditional understanding of the value a mastering engineer brings to the table is getting a little uh, I guess lost is the word. Uh, I think somewhat. I, I think the biggest culprit is not putting the democratization, if you will, of mastering, of making it available to everyone you know, on their own desktop. I don't think that's really that big of an issue because, uh, I mean, ultimately, I just want people to make great sounding records and they can have me help them out in doing that or if they can do it themselves. I mean, I've got, I know guys who will send me records to be mastered um, and they have already like, tweaked the mixes and stuff the way they feel like they ought to be, and I'll, I'll play it, and I mean, I might literally change the level of two songs, and that's it. I, there's no processing engaged, whatever. That's a rarity. I mean, I'll be honest with you, that doesn't happen very common. Most of the time, I feel like I can improve it slightly, but that does happen, and so those guys could master these records and release them themselves, and the, the, everyone would love it, and it represents the artist's vision, and that's a win-win. I think what's been lost primarily, and this is in large part to a lot of the forums, you know, when I when I had that that forum years ago, uh, Mastering Demystified, the whole point of that forum to me was to, to steer people away from the overly gear-centric or overly um, processing-centric mindset of mastering and more towards what mastering was about. Because I've said for years, you know, mastering is not about equalization and compression. You know, mastering is about a, a relatively unbiased set of ears in a room that is really well-tuned, that they are very familiar with, that can listen to something and objectively respond to it. Any processing that happens is sort of the result of that, you know, if, if, it's, ne- if it's necessary. And like I said, I mean, just when I, when I get a record from a guy that I only have to, you know, change the level of one song a half dB to make everything sit right, and I cut parts from there, that's just as mastered as, as an album that took me six hours because every song had to be, you know, really EQ'd and tweaked and compressed differently and all these sorts of things. They're both equally mastered. You know, they were both listened to in the same way and just what needed to be done was done. It seems like nowadays in a lot of the forums, the mindset is mastering is about loudness or is about what sort of EQ or this, and it's gear, 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 gear. And, you know, really, if you're going to talk about gear and mastering, you ought to be talking about what acoustician you need to hire and, you know, what kind of monitors and amplifiers you need to have in your room. Because those are the key issues. Everything else is a result of what comes through that. 
And so I think a lot of guys miss that when they want to master their own records. And if you mix it in a certain room and then you're going to master it in that same room, well, there's obviously some anomalies. Every room has some anomalies that don't that make it where it's, that you're not hearing what's actually coming out of the speakers exactly right. And so when you master in that same room, well, you're probably going to compound those issues. You're not going to make them better because you're not hearing them. So I've, I've told plenty of clients who say, well, we want to master it ourselves. Well, that's fine. Just at least set up your monitors in a different space so you have a different sort of view or sound of what's going on. At least do that. And, you know, maybe it'll work out great. Who knows? I but like that. I just think that, Definitely. you know, ultimately it's about it's about having a different sort of a viewpoint of what you're hearing. And, and uh, so when, when guys mix and master in the same room, I'll always kind of wonder, well, if I don't if I don't hear the record before it's mastered, I always kind of wonder, well, I wonder what this could have been because they're obviously not hearing uh, the issues that happened during the mixing in the first place, you know. So I wanted to kind of ask you, because in my mind, this has been a pretty big topic in the, in the most recent years, and it's something that I still really don't know much about, mastered for iTunes. Okay. This is like, for me, this is like space exploration. I just, I don't get it. Um, <laughs> what is it for? What are the benefits? And where do you start? All right. Mastered for iTunes... Um, Euphonic was one of the first, I think, dozen studios that were certified for, for MFIT, is how I'll call it, because it's a whole lot easier to say, for MFIT. And um, essentially, I Apple, I believe, was trying to, I don't want to say fight the loudness war that's going on or has been going on for decades. I think it's more about they wanted to try to set their product apart a little more from every other online retailer, digital distributor that's out there. And um, I think... The concept behind it is by creating these specially, well, let's step back. So MFIT, an MFIT master is basically a master that we take the 24-bit source file, the mastered 24-bit file, and we will listen to it through a Apple-supplied codec, you know, coder, uh, decoder. Uh, so we can hear what it sounds like in real time as it's played back through this codec, and, and hear what it's going to sound like once it goes through the process of becoming an AAC, then coming back out and being played in the real world. So it sort of simulates the concept of, okay, we created this AAC or this master file, we sent it to Apple, they created the, the iTunes fo the file, they put it on iTunes, the person downloaded it, and now they're listening back to it. It does it all in the, in the closed loop inside your mastering room. So you can hear the detriment of maybe loudness or whatever and how these things impact the codec, Apple's codec. There's also uh, another a droplet they include uh, that checks for clipped samples, you know, intersample uh, peaks, things that happen when you're running a really loud master. And so when you reconstruct the waveform, it actually goes, you know, over zero and causes issues with uh, specifically more so with inexpensive or you know, cheap modern D-Day converters. It's basically a way that Apple, I think, was trying to raise the bar and say, hey, we're going to make things a little bit better sounding. But of course, it didn't take long for a lot of engineers, and you see people all over the forums talking about this. Now, they just basically will take the output fader and, and lower it like a dB or something like that and bounce the exact same file down with the exact amount of clipping and everything else. But because it's down a dB overall, it doesn't, it no longer registers as clipping. And so there's your input file, and that's what they give their clients. I really like the idea. Of, of MFIT and what it allows. And so I spend a little more time on it tweaking and trying to find ways that we can pull the overall level back um, without just pulling the fader back on the master fader, try to re reduce a little bit of the, of the limiting artifacts and things like that so that we can get something that's a little more open, a little more, a little less crushed in the process. But it's difficult because a lot of, you know, a lot of clients really still 
despite all the clamorings online from everybody that wants to say the loudness war is over, it's it's not. I mean, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what YouTube and Apple do. When the client walks in and says, well, it's not as loud as this record that I have, then, you know, that's what we have to do. So <laughs> I, I don't think the loudness war is something that's being fought by consumers or musicians. I think it's all pretty much engineers and gear dorks. I, you I, know, I'll be honest with you. I, 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 most of the people that, that complain about loudness uh, or the lack of it are, at least in my experience, are the artists. I think a vast majority of it comes from the artists. It's not from mixers or, or producers or anything else. I mean, it's, it's, it, now there are exceptions. I mean, the last Lamb of God record, if you actually check it out uh, on, on meters or export it and look at the waveforms, it's loud. It's not, it's not like this, doesn't look like it's dire straits from the 1980s, but, um, <laughs> You know, but it's not this block of cheese. You know, there are there are actually some dynamics that were left intact, and it's probably just as a wild guess, some three dB quieter than the big heavy stuff that's out there, really loud stuff right now. And that extra couple dB makes all the difference in the world, and the drums, things like that. So they were a really great band. Trivium was another band that we cut a record on, and it was even quieter, and it was it has a lot, quite a bit of headroom for a for a you know a metal band, but. Most of it, in my experience, is coming from the. It's coming from the artist. There's a. There's a fundamental issue that's kind of prepped into the industry, especially in the last decade or so. But it's been that way for a while, and it's this sort of not viewing art as art as an expression, but it's like a competition thing. You know, it's it's not as loud as that record. It's it kind of makes me think. I, I can't imagine like a great painter like working and saying, you know what, this is a fantastic painting. I really love it. It represents what's in my in my mind and in my soul. But everybody else use it, is using more blue, so I need to put more blue in it. It just seems kind of crazy that you would do that. Or everybody else is painting on... Actually, that's what I what I meant in that, uh, oh. in my experience, the, the people who are against it um, aren't necessarily... The people who are going to end up buying it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I. I think ultimately the consumer doesn't really. They just want the music. Yep. And I think if the artists and the engineers and everybody together would try to say, hey, let's let's not worry about what this band does. Let's make this record. Just listen to it on its own and see how it sounds. And when you love the way it sounds, then that's what we'll release. I think if everybody did that, we would see a lot of the over loud records go away. Because the reality is. You know, no drummer wants to hear his drums sound like, you know, just flat pieces of paper with, with no dynamics and no punch. And, and no one wants to hear the chorus get smaller than the verse because, you know, everything kicks in and it just it, it tucks away. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know. There's this thing among a lot of artists now, most of them, at least in the mainstream that I work with, that it just seems like there's a lot of fear, a lot of... Uh, worry about, well, it's not as much as this and not as much as that. And I've literally never had in my life, I heard a consumer come to me and go, hey, man, I really love this record, but it's just not loud. It's not loud enough. I, just, I, I mean, there are probably some people out there that, that will complain. I mean, obviously there are dynamics issues. You know, it's really hard to listen to a lot of classical music in your car. I don't really listen to a ton of it, but I mean, if you listen to classical music in your car with road noise and all this kind of stuff, you end up with this... Uh, you know, with this, you know, you can barely hear this part, and suddenly it gets really loud because of the dynamics involved. So I understand, you know, we don't need to. We're not trying to make like really super open jazz records or whatever. But really, it, it's not compression that's the issue. It's this loudness, and it still happens a lot. And it's it's a little bit it's a little bit frustrating when you cut a great sounding record, and then you know everything sounds great. Everybody signed off on, it, and they come back and go, yeah, we just need to be louder now. 
because that really alters everything. You can't just push another dB or two out of it if it's already fairly loud and expect it to just be perfect. It just it doesn't work that way. Everything you have to readdress everything, and it changes everything. And you know, there's a record I cut a few years ago that's that it was talked about in an interview. So I'm I'm not going to say the name of the artist, but it was a big record. I mean, it sold a million copies. It had a couple singles that went multi platinum, and and we worked and worked and worked on this record and made it sound. It sounded amazing. It really did. And everybody signed off on it. Everybody loved it. It was just beautiful top to bottom. And uh, literally the day we were cutting parts, the parts order came in. The label calls up and says that we love it. We love it just the way it is. Now we want it 2 dB louder. <laughs> and it was, you know, it wasn't super loud to begin with, but it was it was in the ballpark. And 2 dB was all the difference in the world. And it, it introduced some distortions here and there and just different things that weren't part of the record to begin with. And the label signed off on it. And there was nothing we could do about it. I mean, at that point, everybody was like, that's the way it is. And all of us engineers that worked on it were freaked out about it, but it, there was really nothing we could do. At the end of the day, it's their art, right? It's their art. I mean, they, they paid for it. They're writing the check. It's, it's the artist's name on there. My, you know, my name is in really tiny letters if it's on there at all. And until, as uh, one of my friends used to say, is, you know, until my name is as big as the artist's name, they get to make the call. So, <laughs> yeah, so I don't That's see that happening call. anytime soon. You know, so we, we try to influence it. And, you know, the loudness war is definitely an issue. It's an ongoing issue. I do feel like in the last couple of years, uh, I've had fewer clients come through that just want it to be blisteringly loud no matter what but if every time i cut a record i cut it the same way unless i'm told from the get-go that it has to be really loud i cut it to where it's about as loud as it can be without being detrimental which is usually you know anywhere from three to six db quieter than kind of the mainstream loud 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 stuff and then let them decide if they want it louder or not and if they want it louder then we work on that but i always try to offer them a what i consider a reasonable level where it sounds as good as it can you know that's kind of the concept that i try to sell and then from there it's their choice but you know most most artists will come back and say well we love it but it's too quiet we want it louder and you know loudness at that point is it's not it's not what's rarely about how it feels or how it conveys the message of the art it's almost always about well when i listen to it next to this other record it's not as loud as that and that's always kind of sad to me that you're willing to compromise it musically, you know, or, you know, just because of competition. It just, uh, I don't really understand it. I'm not an artist at heart, I guess. I'm more of a technician, but I don't really understand that. I would think that you would want your art to stand up and be the best it can be. But it is what it is, you know. Do you get that pressure from labels a lot, or have they started to also chill out about it? Uh like I said earlier, mo a, a vast majority of the response that I get is from the artists themselves okay. that want it louder. That's that's almost always there, and like, and like I said, I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. It's not like it's well. When I work with an indie artist, which I do a lot of, and they listen to the mainstream stuff or the major label stuff, and they go, "Well, it's not as loud as." It's not that. I mean, that happens, but there are just as many well-known household name, you know, artists out there that are are the same way, and I don't. I, I just I, I kind of feel bad because there's like this it's fear driven it's not for the most part it's not art. there are artists who really want it to be just blisteringly loud flat that's what they want they want that sound that happens I actually cut a record a few years ago for an Australian artist that 
they kept wanting it louder and louder and louder. And we were just at the limit. You couldn't get it any louder. They just had run out of room. So I actually pulled the whole thing down like 2 dB and did a bunch of clipping and stuff. And it was just distorted. And, and it, was, it became sort of a mess, almost sort of like a show them like, see, this is, this is as far as we can go. And I sent it to them and they loved it. They didn't care about the overall level. <laughs> they wanted it to be this distorted, crunched up. They loved that sound. And they had a hard time conveying that to me. And until I finally threw my hands up and was like, I don't know what you want. Then we, we got it right. And they loved it. And it was, you know, it's, it, and that's fine. And that's perfectly fine. It's your art. And it's supposed to represent, you know, what you're feeling and what you're trying to convey. And it was a big, heavy record. And it, it kind of made sense in that regard. I mean, if it was a bluegrass record, I would have, you know, looked at him funny. But so, I mean, I, I get it. I'm not trying to say that it's never appropriate. It just feels like there is a lot of art that's being compromised just for the sake of worry that somehow someone's not going to like it or they're not going to buy it. Or something. I, I don't. I don't really understand it. I think they. Nobody wants to be the band that's on someone's playlist at a party that sounds. You know, everyone's having a good time listening to music, and then that song comes on and it's, it's skipped immediately. People don't know why they're skipping it, but because it's not as loud, they don't. They perceive it as not as good and just skip. Yeah, it could be. No one just wants to be in that I'm not, spot. I, I, yeah, I think you're, that's probably part of it. Uh, yeah, and I, I you know, I'm, I think I, li- I think I listen to records differently than a lot of people do because I'm still old school. You know, I listen to something I generally pick out a record I'm going to listen to whether I'm driving around or whatever, and I start at track one and just let it play until it's done. And I'll change the record either if I get bored with it, or more commonly when it gets to the last song, and I'll pick the next record, and that's what I'll listen to. When I've talked to a lot of people in the last year or two, it seems like a lot of people, even those as old as I am, really enjoy like shuffle mode and things like that. And I'm just not. I'm not into that at all. That that always throws me for a loop when I try that. So, and that's probably part of it. So for me, you know, I put the record on, I listen to track one, I adjust the volume, and I'm good to go. Uh, and if I'm bouncing from track to track, it'd be different. I think if I was going to listen in shuffle mode, if I was one of those people, I would turn sound check on in iTunes and let Apple's you know algorithm adjust the overall levels. It doesn't apparently, as far as I know, it doesn't do any processing. It's not limiting or anything like that. It just examines each file and sets a playback level so that the you know relatively apparent level is, is going to be equal. And that's what YouTube's trying to do. And I think Apple Music has that defaulted to, to on, if I'm not mistaken. And that's the thing that a couple of guys have been you know throwing their lassos around and saying, look, the loudness war is over. Do you think that the... Uh normalization of YouTube and Spotify, do you think it's helping or hurting? Uh, Spotify, I don't really have an opinion on other than to say that I don't, uh, I'm not a member of Spotify. I don't, I haven't, I've never signed up for it. And I refuse to based on principle just because I, you know, I, I, I'm a guy that if I like somebody's music, I just go to iTunes or go to the store and I buy it. And I own a license to listen to it whenever I want, wherever I want. Um, I'm kind of against the whole Spotify streaming and hardly paying them bit so but overall i don't know and and the reason why i think that that's that's a good way to combat it is if all playback systems sort of normalize or i don't like to use that term because that sounds like you're changing the audio because of the term that's used in workstations but you know overall just averaging out the levels by pushing certain songs quieter that would definitely be a way to combat it i think but we've had that now for a couple of years. It looks like uh, you know between YouTube and 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 uh, I think Apple Music does that, and there may be other ones. And I'm not really seeing a drastic drop off in the number of clients who are asking for that. I mean, I would think that someone would at least question and say, "Hey, you know, we've heard this, or it sounds like this is going on. Does that mean we can cut it quieter?" But it is still an issue that we deal with, you know, not daily, but 
you know, there are a lot of clients that want it really, really loud because that's what everybody else's record's like. So ultimately, it's their record, and I just try to make them happy, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So what's uh, what's in your listening room? What are you listening on? Uh, these are B&W Nautilus 802s. I've had these now for a little over 13 years. They are, I love them, magnificent. Uh, everybody, you know, monitors are like cars. Everybody has their own preference of what they like and don't like. But I really love these things. They go down to about um, somewhere in the mid-30s hertz range. So then on the bottom end, I've got dual Velodyne DD12 subwoofers um, that are servo-controlled subs. They have like 3,500 watts each uh, peak power, and they're flat down to about 15 hertz. So I've got really good bottom end all the way up to the top. The 802s are powered by Pass Labs X600.5 monoblock amps. These are 600-watt Class A amplifiers, just beasts, and uh, it's really it, it, it really is amazing in here. It sounds incredible. The room was uh, tuned by Northward Acoustics uh, out of Belgium. Brilliant, brilliant design group. I'll, I'll never have a room again that's not a Northward room. And all that together, it really sounds remarkable. Everybody that comes in here and listens for the first time, their jaw just drops. They've really most times have never heard anything like it. Can we talk a little about the room design process? Because um, that's something that comes up a lot on our. Uh on our show and uh, all the way from guys in their bedroom who were telling them to tear the foam down, at least build some panels all the way to people like you who hire the best guys in the world to build them a room. So it's just a topic that comes up all the time. So just curious about what your experience was like going into having a room design like that and uh, what people should expect. And then also what you would suggest for people who aren't in that spot but who still want to have something decent to work with well i've been at both extremes because when i started euphonic uh it was on a bit of a shoestring budget and i focused on monitors uh and amplifiers and things like that i wanted to get the the i wanted to get the reproduction right um but i didn't have a tremendous amount of money for the room so i had this small room it was actually an extra room in our house we lived in at the time and um so it was not it was it was really not unlike probably most of the mastering rooms on this planet, you know, in that regard. Um, just standard construction walls, didn't do anything special. I built a bunch of um, of traps that I hung on the walls, um, a lot of resonant-type traps, you know, with different thicknesses of, uh, different depths behind them and different thicknesses of, of very thin wood across the front of them to, to resonate and absorb the energy. But it was a small room, and what I found was right out of the gate, the bottom end was actually really quite good. And I, it took me a while to wrap my head around why in this small room with really no true base trapping, the bottom end could be good. And then I realized that these the standard construction walls in the space, they were basically invisible to the low frequencies. The, the, the base would just shoot right through them. They, it wasn't trapping them. And so when we built this studio, I kind of incorporated that into the design. Um, a lot of studios are built with the whole with isolation, especially the big rooms, are built with the concept of isolation. You want to isolate the outside world, and so you, you build this room within a room and all these sorts of things. But you know, as soon as you do that, you keep those unwanted sounds that are outside out, if you will. Uh, you're also keeping all the sounds in the room. So suddenly now you have all this bass that's building up that can't just escape the space. And that's when you start getting into these, you know, six-foot bass traps and ceiling traps everywhere. And you're just trying to trap and, and as much bass as you can because it can't get out. It's just building up and, and piling up in the room. So when we built this room, we built it out sort of in the country. I mean, we're not, we say we're in Memphis, but we're really sort of in the sub-suburbs of Memphis out a little bit. Uh, we're not near any 
you can't hear traffic and things like that running around. And so the concept was, hey, let's let's take advantage of this. Let's build out here where we want to be. And now we won't have to worry about isolation because we don't have trains and trucks and, and all sorts of things all around us all the time. So I did not build this with that sort of isolation so that the base frequency, the low frequencies in the base can just, it can zoom out of the room. And so whatever's left, whatever does get folded back into the room, which isn't a tremendous amount, then we can deal with that. And so that really allowed us a lot more, well, to save a lot of space, a lot of construction costs, honestly. And it made this room that really sounds great. And the bottom end's tight and deep, but we don't have to have nearly as much base trapping. I mean, I, our, our base trapping is a proprietary design by by Northward Acoustics, but the whole thing is, is less than a foot and a half deep across the back wall. That's actually kind of blowing my mind. I feel like I'm now starting to understand what some of the problems were in my original studio that I couldn't fix for the life of me. I tried so many different ways of bass trapping and it wouldn't go away, and now it dawns on me that one side of it was against, uh, against stone underground. There's no, no way around that. Yeah. You just have to trap that like crazy, yeah. And so, I mean, I don't really know a lot about acoustics. I read a lot about them, a lot of acoustics um, in books and such uh, before I started Euphonic and while I was still at Ardent because we were, you know, tweaking the room at Ardent when I was still there. And, of course, when I built my room, my first room for Euphonic, I had to kind of, it was trial by fire, and I had to kind of learn my way uh, or educate myself, and I use that term extremely loosely, about acoustics. And... uh, you know, it turned out it turned out okay. I cut a bunch of cool a cool records in that in that little room, but that was when it dawned on me that whole concept of wow, we don't if you don't have to isolate, that that may be the worst thing you can do. Now, obviously, if you have a multi room facility, if you have live microphones that you're recording with, things like that, that's that's a difficult proposition to not have that isolation. But one of the acousticians I spoke with years and years ago, we were talking about building when I started thinking about building Euphonic. We were talking about building, you know, the main room and a smaller sort of production room slash B room. And you know, his first reaction was, "Well, we'll just we'll just isolate the B room and leave the A room alone." And I was like, "Well, why would you do that?" And he, you know, he brought up that point. He's like, "Well, you only have to isolate one from the other. Let's do the smaller one. It's a lot cheaper." You know, well, that makes a lot of sense. I didn't think of that. So. Yeah, so when we decided to build this new space, that's what we did. And it's, it's like I said, it's been fantastic. Yeah, you can hear occasionally you'll hear some thunder or something roll. But for the most part, you don't hear a thing. It's quiet or as quiet as any studio I've ever been in. But we didn't have to. We didn't have the massive expense of isolation, which is incredibly expensive when you build a room within a room. And we also don't. We don't have nearly the the problems with the low frequencies. It's mainly dealing with you know first reflections and things like that. And once we got that all taken care of, the room feels ridiculously open and comfortable, and and uh, everybody just loves it. And uh, yeah, so that's if I ever build another room, assuming I'm not like in the city or I don't have to have the isolation, I'll do it just like this one. That's uh, I completely understand that it's uh it's probably not practical to do that if you're recording but you guys do you guys are only mastering in your room right exactly only mastering i'll do anything yeah. else you would not want me mixing i can tell you that <laughs> so i have an interesting question for you and this is something that we've sort of been asking this month and it's it's going to be really hard to answer but i'm just curious uh you know what tool if you only had to pick one and and mastering is pretty much eq or compression uh which of those if you could only choose one would you would you want and those are the that, that you're not talking about monitoring anything else if we have everything i can just have one eq or one compressor is that the question yeah yeah it'd be an eq no question awesome no hesitation and why is that um 
two reasons. One is because uh, compressors are cool. I like compressors. I've got several different ones. I've got a, a pair of Neve 2254s that I had Fred Hill completely refurbish and modify, and they're they're super cool. I've got a, a Pendulum OCL2 that I love with some different tubes in it. A Cranesong SDC8 that I've had since about 97 or 98. Great compressors, all three of them. But the reality is 80% of the tunes I get in, I don't do any compression on. The only time I do compression on them is because they need a certain amount of color or something. A vast majority of records that are cut now, regardless of genre, have the compression is there. I mean, there's there's no need. They're not overly dynamic. That's incredibly rare. So when, when I reach for a compressor, it's because I'm trying to do something color-wise or tempo-wise that you couldn't do otherwise. But most of the time, you know, your hands are tied. Uh, so EQ, I, I EQ probably 99.5% of the songs that come through here. Probably use compression on 20%. I use EQ on almost 100. So it's a no-brainer for me because EQ can radically change things. You can affect a lot of the same things you can with compression or at least similar results with an EQ. Uh, there are some things, obviously, that one does that the other doesn't. But yeah, it'd definitely be EQ. Do you have a favorite EQ? Um, I think that depends on the day of the week. Um, I have a bunch of EQs. I'm, a, I'm kind of an EQ junkie. There's only... I guess technically two off-the-shelf EQs. One is a Crane Song Ibis. I got the very first one because I worked kind of with Dave a little bit on some of the design aspects of it. I'm not a designer, so I don't want to take any credit like that. Just some of the sort of ideas behind the way things work and the way they interface. But I like that quite a lot. I've got an old Neve 2087 mastering EQ that I like a lot too. It's, it's a bit colored, but um, it really does work a lot of the time. But uh, the rest of my EQs are custom-made. I've got a couple of custom shelving EQs, and uh, I've got a Davalizer, which is named after Dave Collins from his A&M days, A&M Mastering. It's a, a brilliant-sounding, real, real broadband peaking EQ. I've got uh, what's called a VSS EQ. Uh, it's the variable slope. This thing, uh, Frank Lacey builds almost all my equipment out of Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, brilliant guy. This VSS EQ is, is unbelievable. It's, it does 12 and 6 dB slopes. It's shelving only. Uh, but also, he's figured out a way uh, in the analog domain to do a 3 dB per octave slope on a shelf. That's something I've never seen before. So it's incredibly subtle, but it it's very good. It's it's you, it's hard to put into words what it does because I'll I can throw something throw a shelf on it like 6k with a 3 dB slope and add a half dB, and there's you don't ever hear the knee. You don't ever hear where well that's where the EQ is kind of kicking in. It's just this gradual lift. It's almost like one of those tilt EQs that you can tilt where the bottom goes down and the top goes up around a certain point, but the bottom yeah, those doesn't. Yeah, are awesome. Yeah, but the bottom doesn't go down on this one, so you can also add on the bottom end at this 3 dB per octave or 6 dB per octave slope, whatever you want to do. It's it's a remarkable EQ. I've got a couple of Barry Porter net EQs that Frank built. I think the I think the first one he built for me was probably the first commercial build of that Barry Porter EQ that's become so popular. It's just a great clean utilitarian EQ. It just sounds it doesn't sound like anything really if it's set up right. It's just it's, I've got two of those actually four channels. And then I had him build me a custom shelving unit that's a purely passive shelf with a makeup gain stage in it. And um yeah, so that, I mean that's that's that that's all of them. That's about what six or seven seven EQs there, but um, a vast majority would be done with just you know the VSS and the Davalizer. Honestly, two very sort of simple, elegant EQs that just do a lot of heavy lifting. Awesome. So here's a question from one of our listeners, from Mike Glenn. It says, what are the most common slash aggravating mixing mistakes you find yourself dealing with when you receive mixes? 
And short of requesting a new mix, how do you go about mastering them? Um, <clears throat> the first one's probably monitoring problems. And I guess what's most aggravating about that is not that people don't go out, everybody doesn't go out and spend money on a great room, but that it sounds sometimes like some art, some guys will mix something and they never listen to it outside of their mixing environment to, to just check themselves or see what's going on. And you'll get mixes in that are just really, really far too bright or way too much bottom end. And if the balances aren't good uh, within those areas, there's not a lot you can do. Because you, if it's if it's too bright, because just the cymbals are too bright, for example, but the top end of the guitar or the vocals or whatever feels good, it's very hard to tame that without making the other parts sound worse. You know, same thing on the bottom end. I mean, you get a track in and the bass guitar is you know four dB too hot, but the kick drum feels good. Well, it just makes it really really hard to get in there and dig out the bass. It's nearly impossible. And a lot of times I feel like if these guys would listen in a variety of places, you know, four or five places, it doesn't matter how familiar you are with something or not, when you listen to it on a laptop, even if it's not yours, at least you get some semblance of is something sticking out and really out of, out of whack. I think that'd be helpful if people would spend a little time doing that. But that's one, and, and these, uh, the, I think these sort of stereo, stereoizers, whatever you want to call them, have become fairly popular in the last I don't know, 10, 15 years. And you can almost immediately tell when somebody's put one on a mix because it comes in and there's like this weird out of phase stuff happening. And, you know, once it's there, it's really almost impossible to, to undo that. In fact, it, I'd say it is impossible to undo that. And that makes it really tough uh, to try to make something sound good and have impact and feel good when it kind of feels like your head's being turned inside out listening to it. Those are, I would say those aren't common issues. I'm actually surprised nowadays at the, at the number of really solid mixes that, that that we get in. It's it's not surprising when you get one from, you know, a, a, a well-known mix engineer. You expect that to sound good. But when you get stuff from a guy that's like, hey, this is my first project I've ever mixed, and you listen to it and you're like, holy crap, this sounds really good. Um, that's a lot more common than getting the bad stuff in. Now, it may just be kind of where I am, you know, where people, the people that I attract or whatever happen to be that way, I don't know. But that's my experience. It seems like there are a lot of guys out there that no one's ever heard of that are really, really very good. And uh, so mixed problems aren't really that big of a deal anymore to me. I think most days it's just a matter of hearing little issues here and there, nips and tucks that need to be done to correct them. But definitely the, the phase issues and the overall sort of frequency response slash balance issues are two big ones that are almost impossible to deal with in the mastering room. Mike Kalajian is asking, and he was actually on Mastering Month. Uh, oh, Mike. Yeah, he, he's awesome. He was asking if you could go back to your first day as a mastering engineer and deliver one piece of advice, what would it be? Um, it would be that even when things don't look good, just keep doing it because you love it. And um, I never gave up, but there were definitely some times where I just questioned, was like, man, I'd... I wonder, man, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Because this is, it's, it's, it was very frustrating early on at times. And, but I just felt passionate about doing this. This is what I really love to do. And I looked forward to doing it every day. And so in times when it was scary, like when I started Euphonic, it was, that was a pretty scary jump because I went from having a, working for a fairly large, in the, at least in the recording world, studio to, um, to being on my own, sink or swim. That was pretty scary. But I'm really glad that I, I did it, that I just jumped in and, and tried because the opening Euphonic was the best decision I ever made, um, at least in the business world. So, yeah, it would be just stick with it. Don't ever give up. Just continue trying to be the very best you can be at all times because that's 
I see too many guys like they get into it and they kind of get jaded after a while because this, this industry can wear on you. You know, it can be it can be hard. And I, it seems like a lot of guys sort of they get jaded. Some some guys it seems like they think it's cool to act like they're over everything. Like, you know, they hate their job kind of vibe, I, I guess. I don't know. I, I get that vibe from guys. Like, they think that's that's cool or something, and I don't I don't get it. Um, <laughs> yeah, stay focused. Always always stick with it and stay in love with it because that's it's been it's been great. It's been the best job ever. It, that's, um, I, I feel like with your move to start Euphonics, I think that uh, everyone at some point, if they want something great out of their lives, is going to have to take a risk like that just uh, go with it yeah i mean it was like i said it was it was scary um but i described it to people like when i worked at ardent uh, it, it really felt like i was on this you know like aircraft carrier when it came to like you know mastering it was like if we wanted if they wanted to do something like you know wanted to buy a piece of equipment or whatever that was really not an issue they had huge you know everything they did was in large scale so if they wanted to buy something they, they wanted to buy pro tools rigs they go out and buy four full-blown pro tools rigs that are when they when they first bought them in the you know whatever late 90s they were something like you know fifteen twenty thousand dollars each and that was like you know more than my first studio cost you know so but they could do that kind of stuff but and you know when i started euphonic i felt like i was in like a little you know whatever you call those jet skis you know it was very <laughs> small had very little you know relative buying power if you will but i was nimble and i could dance around things where the aircraft carrier takes seven miles to make a u-turn you know i could turn on a dime and that flexibility early on really helped me because when i when somebody called and said hey we want to do a surround project and i wasn't set up to do surround well guess what i can i can set up to do surround pretty quickly if i needed to and that's what i did i went out and bought the equipment got set up boom i was ready to go there wasn't like a decision making process and and well how it's the long-term amortization schedule for this and that there was none of that it was just like let's do this let's go boom 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 we did it you know so being able to make those decisions and being able to to be more nimble in the market is one of the reasons why I've kept it relatively small. I mean, most studios that are doing kind of the work that we do and, and the people that we, say, rub elbows with are much larger places, multi-room facilities. They usually have a big staff and all this support staff, this kind of stuff. I have worked very hard to remain a one-man show as much as possible throughout my career. Because when clients call, they want to call and they want to talk to me. They don't want to talk to my assistant or a secretary or anything else for that matter. It allows me to, it keeps the overhead extremely low, obviously. Now, I mean, you know, I've been blessed. We do we do well financially. But, I mean, the ability to just be able to do what we want to do when we want to do it, I love that. I love not having to worry about, well, how is this going to affect the master engineer next to me? Because there isn't one. It's me, you know. That doesn't mean that long term that won't ever change. But for now, this is definitely the way... This is the way I've been for 13 years and the way I'm planning on staying. Do you have uh, an assistant or interns, or is it literally just uh, you? I had one. I, you know, I, I tried that in, back in 05. I had one for about a year. Uh, he was very helpful. He was a good guy. But at the end of the year, he had some different ideas about wh where he wanted to go in his career. And I had, by that time, come to the conclusion that it was, in my opinion, more work than it was worth having an assistant. And so we, we parted ways amicably we're still good friends but since then I, that kind of got that out of my system it was it was uh because of the efficiency that we talked i talked about earlier and the way that i try to work it just means that i can accomplish a tremendous amount in, in a relatively short amount of time 
So yeah, I cut all my own parts. I QC everything, all this kind of stuff. But then I'm also a perfectionist and I don't have to worry about somebody else dropping the ball uh, or something not getting done exactly the way the client wanted or a miscommunication about what the client wanted. You know, when they talk to the assistant and they say, we want this, we want that. Well, everybody, you know, talks about music and uses different terminology. And so by the time it gets to me, it might be changed ever so slightly. The one downside is, yeah, it makes it difficult for me to get on the phone with people. Um, I tell people all the time, I'm pretty notoriously awful. It, awfully difficult to get on the phone with. I try to make time to do that. I try to answer calls, but I also, when I'm working on a project, I mute the ringer on the phone and my attention's on that project. It's not about the next project. So that makes it difficult, but you know, most people email and text now anyway, so it, it's, it works out okay. So can we talk for a second about the efficiency? Because for some reason, when you, when you talked about that earlier, I was assuming that you had people under you that you delegated tasks towards. And uh, we talk about efficiency a lot on this show because, um, you know, we feel that that's one of the one of the key things that you need to develop in order to survive in the current day market. You need to be able to move fast. You need to be able to get to work quickly and not be held up by your own process um, exactly. so you can meet the, the time demands. So what do you do to stay this efficient if you're just on your own? Um, the first step and this was this was this was decided before I mean this is back when I was an ardent I felt this way even though we had support staff there and everything it was um, I discovered when I was at ardent that that being autonomous was really beneficial in a lot of ways there were some times where you know I'd submit an invoice and something would get twisted around between me and the and the accountant and between that and the client and the, and things would just get jumbled and sometimes this would be said but it wasn't reflected on that and just that sort of thing and I spent a lot of time it felt like not a lot of time but I spent enough time dealing with like putting out fires and correcting issues that would not have happened if I had just sent the invoice directly to the client and they had paid me that while I was still at Ardent, I became basically autonomous. You know, I did basically everything there, booked my own sessions and everything, because I also realized that I can determine how much work I do in a day. And I don't mean overcommitting or whatever and rushing through things, but what I mean is I have a good idea on a project how long it's going to take to cut these parts. So if I have on my schedule that I'm cutting parts for this band today, I know for a fact that that's, well, they want two MFITs, two DDPs, they want two PMCDs, they also want, they want all this, that's going to take several hours to cut all that, whereas a normal record might take, you know, 45 minutes to cut the parts on. And so by doing all of it myself and knowing what that project entails, it makes it, I think a lot more efficient. So that was that was like the first step. So when I started Euphonic, I knew right away that from a gear perspective, I also wanted that efficiency. And that's why most of my equipment in my rack is custom built. It's because I would look for something that I wanted. I want to do this specific thing and nothing on the market does exactly the way I want to do it. So I'll have somebody build it for me. And it costs more money to do that, of course. But when you have these tools that, that help you and you know exactly what to do and when, and how to reach, you know, I can reach for this and I can solve this problem in one click or two clicks and be done and move on. That's way better than, okay, is this EQ going to be better or should I do that for that or whatever? Um, and so that was a part of it. Uh, the, the rest of it got into the, the sort of boring, uh, to me boring, aspect of like paperwork and organization and things like that. And um, that's just become sort of like the way I, the way I work. I, I because I'm a one-man show, I can label things a certain way and know exactly what it means. I can you know, move about from project to project really quickly. Um, I mean, it's not. I'll I'll work on an average week, some 25 to 30 
different bookings in five days. Now, that doesn't mean I'm doing 25, 30 records, obviously. I mean, some, some bookings are as simple as they want a revision and they want to turn this song two up a half dB and print another you know, reference before they approve it. That's a booking to me. It's anytime I've got something on the schedule to address. But, you know, that's 25 to 30 things a week that I can work on. And that's probably, I generally do a record and at least one EP along with a single and some parts every day. Uh, and that's a lot of work for a lot of people. But because of the way we, I've got things set up and I've done it over the years, I can roll through that stuff really quickly, you know, and unless I hit a problem. Sometimes you get on a record and you just, it bogs down because each song is radically different and has radically different problems that you have to address and that kind of a thing. But for most records and most days, um, just the way that I've set everything up means that I can just roll through things and not have to spend time spinning my wheels, not have to spend time you know, trying to figure out how I'm going to address this or how do I handle that. The one-man show thing is difficult at times. It can be, you know, there, there's days where you're you're working and it's it can be a little bit, frankly, a little bit overwhelming. You know, I come in and there's just so much to do and there's a dozen emails that have to be answered and there's people calling and it's just, it can, it can be tough. Uh, but most days, um, it just, I'm able to just roll through it and take care of everything. And I really like being able to, deal with each client one-on-one. -on -one. And I think the clients, most of the time, the artists really appreciate that. They like being able to... Yes, they sure they do. Like being able to, and I've had comments, many comments over the years. We really like it when we call and we talk to you and not your assistant or your secretary or, or whatever. And then ultimately, it puts the pressure on me because I've got no one I can pass the blame on to. And that's, you know, that's that can be helpful as well because um, I've dealt with other, you know, guys before where you were trading files and stuff and there's this finger pointing on there. Oh, well, my assistant didn't do this or so-and-so didn't do that. Well, you don't get that from Euphonic. If there's a problem, it's like I raise my hand and go, okay, sorry, I screwed up. Let's go. Let's make it right. And that pressure alone helps keep me on my toes, I think, a lot of times. So, yeah, you own everything in terms of, uh, I don't mean like own the business, but I mean you yeah. own everything that takes place. It's all on you. Euphonic is all me. And, you know, I chose that name because uh, when I started off in 03, I had had a couple of, you know, decent records. Um, but I, I don't, I didn't have that name. I don't know if I do now, but I mean, I didn't have a name where I could do, you know, Brad Blackwood mastering and people were like, oh, yeah, we got to use that guy. You know, I love that guy. I really liked, and I didn't know what the future for Euphonic was. And I still to this day don't know what the future for Euphonic is. I don't know if we're ever going to, you know, expand and, and do something larger than, than I am now. But uh, I thought, well, let's come up with let's come up with a, a name for the company that is uh, you know has a more corporate feel to it, a more established feel to it. And then you know if we under that umbrella, it can be just me or it can be multiple people down the road if we choose to do that. And you know so far it's just been me because that's what I'm comfortable with and that's the way I like it. But yeah, everything that comes through here has got my handprints on it and uh, and nobody else's really. My wife helps out a little bit. She's you know my my partner in the business. So when I say we, that's what I'm talking about. It's her, uh, it's the two of us, but yeah, I mean, it's like, that's, that's it. And, um, like I said, that, that puts the pressure on us to, on me specifically to make sure that everything gets done to my standard, the way I want. I deal with the clients that way. I never have to worry about a client being tired. I mean, a, an employee being tired and, and smart, smarting off to a, to a client or something like that. And I've heard horror stories. I've picked up work from from artists before where they had bad situations with other studios where, you know, they couldn't talk to the engineer and the assistant got testy with them and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, that just, that doesn't <laughs> happen here because, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that to my clients. So, um, 
there's there's definitely negatives to being a one man show. It can be rough sometimes, but I feel like the the service that that I can give that direct one on one service is is better. It, it does mean that I'm not going to be the cheapest guy around. You know, I'm I'm, I'm not the most expensive guy around, but I'm probably I don't I know I'm not the cheapest guy around. There's a lot of guys that that people that want to work with me that can't afford to, and I get that. But it's worked out okay so far. So you know, we just just trying to keep everybody happy that we get that we get the opportunity to work with. But also, you figured out a lot of your uh, from what you said a lot of your philosophy towards efficiency when you weren't a lone wolf when you were working with a lot of people, you figured out exactly what was slow about a um, large team and kind of kind of figured it all out at that point. So it's uh, I, I feel like that's important to be said because you didn't figure out how to be efficient in a vacuum. Even though you work on your own now, I think, would you agree that it took seeing how slow a large group of people working together can be? Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, absolutely, no question that, like I said, the, the the battleship jet ski sort of thing, that that, that comparison is, is valid on a lot of levels. And I learned very quickly. I, I've told people for years. I mean, I, I loved my time at Ardent, and I learned how to do a lot of things business-wise and, and, and engineering-wise there, but I also learned a lot of things not to do there, I, that I could see the way clients reacted to certain policies that were put in place, that these policies probably had a great reason, I'm sure they had a great reason to exist in the first place, but the way they impacted people, uh, different clients, was different. Sometimes it was great for a client, sometimes it was a problem for a client, and um, I like the fact that I can address things and deal with things differently. I can have a policy of, you know, all clients are are COD, and that's kind of my policy. You you pay for the session. We have a, you know kind of a fixed rate that we do things for, and you pay for the session uh, before the session starts. And uh, for ninety five or ninety eight percent of our clients, that's the way it works. For the, we have a few clients that we've worked with for literally fifteen twenty years, and they're used to paying at the end of the session. And I'm not going to sit here and and change things up and and you know and change the entire way that we've worked for this time period just because there's this new policy. And when I was at Ardent, that just when, when new policies would come out, they were generally very sweeping. It was, okay, this is the way we're going to do things now, and that's the way it was for everybody regardless. And, uh, you know, that's not always the best way to handle it. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's tough when it's tough to get too personalized when you have so many moving pieces to worry about. It makes perfect sense. I think sense. that's really great advice for our audience as well, because I think a lot of people struggle with, you know, the sort of the the technical part of running the business and the legalities and, and how to handle payments and invoices and all this. And to hear someone, you know, kind of put some some kind of like logical reasoning behind how, you know, treat people like people. That's a great thing. You know, and there's times there are some labels, major labels, I'm not going to name any names here, um, <laughs> that they, they're COD. Uh, they, I don't, they've told me, well, we can't do that. Every time they book a session, we can't do that. But I know historically that if I don't get paid before the session starts, that it's going to be six months or more before I ever see money from them. And um, so I just tell them up front, well, before we deliver the masters, we have to be paid. Well, we can't do that. We're not said, okay, well, then 
you know, I guess we can't do the session. Well, miraculously, they, they find a way to do it every time, but they always want to fight you on it. Um, amazing how that works. It's amazing, yeah. But most of the labels, um, very quick paying. I mean, despite the reputation they seem to have, uh, almost all the labels, uh, major labels, if there's a, any issue whatsoever, they, they jump on it, they take care of it. There's only one in particular that I'm COD with at this point. But most of the most everybody else, the all the all the independents and and most of the smaller labels, yeah, it's it's. I got to that point. I finally realized it's like you know, I, historically this industry has worked where you either pay a deposit and pay the rest of it at the back end, or you just pay for it all before you get your masters. And the real problem with that for me is that that kind of it works under the guise of you can't trust me to do the work and deliver it like I told you I'm going to. You know, it's like you, you you don't. That's basically what the labels are saying. They're like, it's insulting. Yeah, kind of. If you think about it, it really is. It's like, wait, I'm doing the work right now, and you're going to tell me that you know a month later you'll pay me for it, or whenever we get done. And they obviously came to you for a reason too. Yeah, and I understand early on, but I mean, once I got to a certain point in my career, I kind of looked around. And I thought, you know what, man, there's there's a body of work out there, and people can look at that, and if they don't think that I'm going to deliver, then maybe we just we're not the right facility for them we're not the right mastering house because there's got to be a mutual respect and so uh you know i started going a few years ago i went to this you know basically all sessions are paid before the session begins or i bump it kind of a, a thing and it's i really expected there to be a pushback from you know i don't know at least 10 percent of, of my clients that had worked with me for years and not one single person had anything to say about it there were just a couple of them that didn't quite catch it at first they were so used to this process and i would tell them hey look we're switching to this if that's okay that oh that's no problem at all i mean that they, they had zero issue with it and so you know i'm i feel better about it now because you know what I, you know what i do i spend so much less time contacting people saying hey we, this is still open oh yeah i forgot to pay that sorry and and all this kind of stuff because basically if it's not paid we just bump the session back to the next date you know and oh crap we didn't pay so they pay and then we do it and it's just it's not a big deal but it's really saved me it's like an efficiency thing it saved me a ton of time chasing people down saying hey you know what about this invoice oh yeah i forgot all about it you know and i, I think genuinely people do i don't think they're people are bad they're trying to not pay i mean i just think that they get their stuff back they're listening to it they love it they're planning artwork they're doing all the things that go into finishing up the record and it just it's easy for that to fall through the cracks or become that thing that's sitting over there on the side of the desk like oh yeah i need to take care of that but then it gets covered up or pushed away and i used to spend a lot of time like uh, basically every week there was an hour or two that i would spend contacting clients about open invoices and that just does that's that's gone away it doesn't happen anymore and i wish i'd thought of that you know 15 years ago but I, I think that for anybody doing this business if the client doesn't trust you enough to give you at least half the money up front then you have to question whether or not you really want to invest your time with this person because uh, you have to wonder, you know, what's their motive here? What, where is this going? Well, why would they have a problem with paying me a little bit of money to get started in the first place? I always advise people to get as much as they can up front because especially if you're working on with A-list clients, more than likely they're not going to break up. It might just take a while to get paid. But, uh, you know, for guys on much lower levels, like, they have to worry about what are the band breaks up <laughs> in the middle of the project, yeah. things things like that. And uh, they might never get paid. So I urge them to just get it done at first. And then also, like you said, it, it frees from having to have excessive contact about payment. And I think ever since I switched to that a few years ago, my relationship with clients got better because money is always kind of weird to talk about. Yeah. And once it's out of the way, it's out of the way. 
and oh, done. I know. I nobody likes talking about it, and no one. It's so uncomfortable calling a client, even if they're a new client, or sending them an email and saying, "Hey, look, you know this this hasn't been paid for thirty days, and you know we're. I know you don't need the parts yet, but you know it's like we need to kind of close this up, and you know it's. I don't know. It's just a conversation I'd rather not have, and that those conversations have have largely gone away now, and so. Um, that's also been a stress reliever in that regard because I just I don't like talking about money. I, I want to talk about the art. Let's let's the money's something we have to deal with. Let's deal with it. Let's get it over with and let's move on and, and deal with the project. I think that's a, a good motivator for a lot of people to get a manager or a business manager or something. Uh, I've so thought they, about that. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, just so they don't have to worry about it anymore and they can focus on the art. I, I know a lot of guys who are in that situation and it's worked really well for them. I think for, uh, I think for, you know, engineers and mixers and producers, you know, that, that part of the production chain where you're dealing with probably much larger sums than, than the master engineers deal with commonly. I mean, cause you're talking about weeks and weeks of work and things like that. That's, that becomes more difficult, I think. Cause it's, it's hard to look a band in the eye and go, yeah, we're going to cut this, this album for whatever, $25,000. We need that up front. I mean, you know, most fans are going to be like, dude, I, let me sell my car and a kidney and I'll get back with you. But yeah. with mastering, it's not really that big of a deal because the time period is so compressed. You know, we're talking about a day, a two, uh, typically maybe a week total that we're working on a project with all, if there's multiple revisions, things like that. Right. And so it's a lot easier to stomach any kind of, you know, um, upfront pay exactly. or 50, you know, 50, it's, 50. It's a smaller amount and it's a shorter time period. They're expecting to pay it whether it's today or five days from now, they're expecting to make that payment. So they've probably got it arranged. I think most bands aren't expecting to walk into the studio and their very first day they, they deliver a you know, cashier's check for $20,000 or whatever whatever the budget is. And I think that makes it, that makes it difficult. So I, I think a manager is really good to have there because the manager can be the bad guy. And he could be the guy that goes, hey, man, you have to give us this check or the session's not happening today or tomorrow or whenever that, the next check is due kind of a thing. And that doesn't have to get in the way of the relationship with the engineer. Uh, I've got a bunch of friends of mine who you know have gotten on with management and things like that over the years. And it's really, in most cases, it seems like the manager not only helps with that aspect of it, but because the manager is out beating the drum for the guy the whole time, they're able to get more work that they couldn't get because they were busy working. You know, that sounds like an ideal situation. For, that sounds like a very ideal situation. Yeah, but you, I mean, you have to get the right manager. It's, it seems like managers are like producers now, where just everybody's a manager. Everybody's a producer. You know, it's like you just you start decide you're going to be a manager, and suddenly there you are. You've got your shingle hung out, <laughs> and you're managing. And you know, so you have to find the right guy uh, that actually knows what he's or she that knows what they're doing and can actually get you the work and, and pay for their whatever percentage they take. For me, it just it hasn't really made sense. Because of, like I said, the differences in the mastering world versus the production side of it where you're spending weeks and weeks and have these kind of complex contracts a lot of times. I don't have any contracts. It's just, here's what it costs. Pay me and, and we'll do it, you know. But I do think more guys need to think more about money and the aspect of how they bill and, and things like that. Because I've, I've run into a lot of guys in the industry that struggle with things because they haven't taken the time to sit down and really think their way through it and what's best for them, what's best for the client, you know, th those sorts of things. And uh, it's, I have a friend that cuts vinyl, who cuts a lot of vinyl, and he deals with that a lot because he's, he's, he's been a COD guy. Basically, when he finishes the record, before he sends off the masters, he has to get paid, uh, the, the lacquers, to, to plating. But the problem is, you know, he feels like if the lacquer sits there for a week before it's plated, that, and a lot of, a lot of uh, cutting engineers feel this way, that, uh, that it actually it changes the sound of the, the lacquer a little bit. It needs to be plated as quickly as possible. 
So you finish the cut and you're waiting on payment because you want to FedEx this thing out, but you can't get in touch with the client and this and that and the other. And now you're worried about your, your physical product degrading slightly or whatever. And those are situations where you go, you know, it'd be best if you just told them, this is how much it costs, pay me up front, we'll do it and let's go. And it just, it seems to work better for me. And so I, I feel like uh, anybody listening who feels weird about charging or who um, has gotten stiffed or doesn't, you know, has had a weird situation of pay attention to this very, very closely. Take the time to learn uh, how to invoice properly, how all that works, and to really think about what types of uh, you know, payment plans or uh, frequency of payment, any of that amounts would work for your clients. Um, there's yeah. usually a good solution, but uh, almost anything is better than get paid at the end. Yeah, no, I agree, yeah. It, it, because we've had, I mean, we, I've had situations where we've gotten stiffed. I mean, probably I've written uh, several thousand invoices now over the years, and, you know, maybe a half a dozen of them haven't paid for one reason or another. And, you know, they've always been, you know, independent clients, smaller for the most part. One or two have been larger invoices. But, you know, you just, you just absorb it and roll on because, you know, whatever, 99.9% of the clients have been zero problem. But yeah, that, that, that's not a make or break situation for a mastering studio because we might write, you know, 10 invoices a week. But if you're, you know, a producer or a, a recording engineer, or you're doing all three positions, let's say, a, you know, producer engineer mix uh, on a record that's going to go six weeks and at the very end of it, the band breaks up and you haven't gotten a dime yet. Man, good luck. I mean, even with a contract, you're good luck, good luck actually getting paid on that, even if you take them to court and win and all that kind of stuff and it gets ugly. Oh, that just sounds terrible. I'd, I'd love to see people uh, avoid that. Uh, too many guys, look, just too many guys in this industry get into it because they love music, they love recording, and they forget that it's a it's a business like any other. If you're going to be successful in it, you have to know how to run it like a business. And it, whether it's a restaurant or you sell you know toys in a shop or whatever, you've got to have an idea. You don't have to have a full business plan, but you have to have an idea of how you're going to make money and how you're going to operate in a way that's efficient and takes care of the client, but also leaves a little bit of cheese for you at the end of the day. And if you don't have all that lined up and figured out how you're going to deal with all those issues, then you're really dealing with a hobby that you're trying to make a living off of. And if, uh, that's very difficult. That's, I would say most places that do, most people that do that probably don't succeed. They end up back in the real world, you know, working at a, working a job somewhere. I mean, what could go wrong with not planning? <laughs> well, <laughs> I can't think of any. I can't tell you the number of guys I've talked to. It's funny you say that, but that, it's it's very real. Where you no, guys I know. say, well, you know, I'm struggling. Why am I struggling? How did you start your business? And I'll pull out the paperwork from the you know the year or so that I spent researching and planning before I actually started Euphonic, and their eyes get kind of big, and they're like, well, I just kind of thought about it a little bit, and it's like, yeah, I spent a lot of time really detailing stuff and figured out. You know, how many hours a week? I knew from day one when I started Euphonic how many hours a week I had to bill to make the same money I was making when I was at Ardent. And uh, it was a relatively small number, and I thought, man, this is, I can do this. And that made it very easy for me to know all the way through what I needed. What, what, do I, what are my marks? And uh, guys that don't do that, I don't understand. Well, you talk about having guts. It takes a lot of guts to jump out there with no plan. You know, <laughs> I thought I was gutsy. So we have one more question. Um, from our audience who'd like to ask you and uh, we thank you for taking this much time to talk to us by the way oh, sure. um, this is from Giovanni Angel he says do you find that shadowing an established mastering engineer is still the way to get somewhere in the mastering game or at least um, get good at it I think 
that it's one of the probably two or three ways that you can that you can really get good. I didn't shadow an established master engineer at Ardent. I, you know, I was the only one there, basically. But what I did have at my disposal was a large studio complex. Like I, I keep saying large, it's hard to quantify that. But it was a, it's a, it's a three, you know, like I said, full room facility, three track rooms, two uh, two SSLs and an Eve. I mean, it's a big place. And by working there with guys like John Hampton and uh, Jim Dickinson and Skid Mills and some of these guys, Jim Gaines, that were either on staff there or were regular engineers there, I really learned how to listen from those guys. They, they taught me, you know, how to hear things, basically. And that sounds kind of weird to say that, but I mean, uh, you don't really know how to listen to things until somebody teaches you. I mean, you can hear but really knowing what to listen for and what sounds good and what doesn't sound good and why this sounds good and why this doesn't sound good, that's what you learn from just being in the trenches with somebody for a long time. So I think working with another mastery engineer as a mentor is a fantastic way to get started. Someone who's you know established and, and has, a, has a track record, not just somebody who is saying, hey, I'm a mastery engineer now. Um, that, uh, working at a studio complex where you have a lot of guys who are good engineers that you can bounce things off of. And, you know, especially guys like, like I said, the guys I listed, all those guys have huge hit records or, or really well-known engineers or producers in what they do. And, uh, they know how to listen. They know what think, what sounds right, what doesn't. So when you cut something for them and it comes back to them initially and they go, Oh, this sounds great, but there's too much 700. You go back and you listen and you're like, hey, let's pull that back. Oh, wow, that does sound better, you know. And you really learn how to hear things right and what sounds good and what doesn't sound good because of that involvement. So those are the two ways. The third way would be like working for a label, I think. Uh, it's one of the in-house guys at some of these labels um, because they do a lot of stuff, catalog work. And they get to hear a lot of things. I had the benefit at Ardent of actually doing both because there was a record label there. There was a secular label and a Christian label, both based at Ardent. So I did a lot of stuff for Ardent Records as well as the clients, you know, Ardent's clients that came through. And so I think if you have anything like that where you are around a lot of established engineers and you get to, to work with them and learn from them, that's going to be beneficial. Um, there, there are probably guys out there that just started mastering on their own and carved out a real nice niche for themselves, but I'm not, I'm not readily familiar with any of them. It seems like all the guys that have been successful that I know of have started by working under somebody and learning, you know, for years, and then striking out on their own when they felt ready to. Well, there you have it. Actually, Joey uh, taught himself, but that's a, a different world of mastering. But yeah, I, I don't actually know of any of the mastering guys that we've talked to on here that I've worked with who have taught themselves. Almost everyone that I've ever known has come up under somebody. I taught myself how yeah. to master. Ha <laughs> Well, yeah, no, there are there are there are exceptions. I just like I said, I didn't I don't readily know of any. Or I didn't I didn't until you spoke up. Readily know of any that I knew of that were working. You know, that that did that. Most guys it seems like have done kind of what I did, one way or the other, either at a mastering house or at a studio label, that kind of a thing. Uh, where they just got that daily sort of, you know, they were surrounded by. I think you just have to be around people that know how to listen. If when you do that, you'll you'll learn a lot from them. Yeah, it's it's much harder. I I feel to teach yourself mastering alone. Uh, but you know, none of us are alone nowadays with the internet. It's we're all connected, and it's really easy to reach out to even people like us. You know, through through the podcast and and through our private producers club and and all the things that we have going on on Facebook. But uh, yeah, I'd say like if if you're really interested in taking mastering to the next level with your career, 
you know, go out, reach out and uh, email some people and find somebody to shadow. Yeah, it's an entirely different way of learning to hear than mixing and producing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I just and yeah, like everybody's different. You know, there are guys who are just naturally great listeners. They hear things well. They know what sounds good. And if you're if you're one of those guys and you want to strike out on your own, that's great. But I mean, I went to full sale. I did the old, you know, whatever. I guess you'd call this the old school at this point. The, not the the new old school. The old school was just you went and swept floors of the studio and they gave you a shot eventually. Then then there was the you know you go to school somewhere, one of these specialized schools, and now it's gotten back to don't go to school, just spend the money on a Pro Tools rig and teach yourself. And um, I still kind of feel like getting some training from somewhere is probably the way to go. Um, but there are exceptions out there of guys who have done extremely well and they haven't done any of that stuff. So Sure. Well, Brad, thank you so much for coming on. And again, we, we went over and appreciate you going over with us. Uh, you've been super informative and super cool. And just thank you for thanks for sharing with us. Hey, it's been my pleasure. Definitely. Very interesting. Well, it's nice talking with you guys. Thanks so much for having me on. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to fishman.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit nailthemix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.